What's up, everybody? Michael Nettemeyer here with Joe Geary, and we are your host of the Witwin Podcast, whatever it takes, whenever it's needed. Today, we are going to be answering some questions that we've received. Uh, we actually like getting questions. It's, uh, it's one way for us to add more content to the podcast and really try to, instead of guessing what you guys want to know, now we know firsthand. So if you have questions, the easiest way is to send us a message on Instagram. You can send it to mine or Joe's account. I'm Michael underscore Nettemeyer, N-E-T-T-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Joe is at Joe Geary, and it's G-E-A-R-Y. So super simple, at Michael underscore Nettemeyer or at Joe Geary. Send us a message on Instagram with questions, and we'll get them on the podcast and answer them. So we love hearing from you guys. So let's dive in, Joe. we got a handful of questions here to answer. What is our first question? Yeah, so the first question is, what do you do when everything around you is negative? And we see it a lot nowadays. We see the media, uh, the headlines, You know, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's the economy, whether it's a nuclear war. Negativity is surrounded by it. We're surrounded by negativity. So how do you combat that or what do you do when you're surrounded by all that negativity? It's a good question because you're absolutely right. It's The news is not designated to or is not designed to really be positive. You don't see a whole lot. Negative Negativity sells headline, or headlines. Negative headlines sell. Um, so, yeah, I agree. We've seen a lot of that in the real estate space. You see a lot of it in the economy right now. You see a lot of top influential uh, financial people talking about recession. Are we in a recession? Are we not? Are we headed to recession? I got a thing today that said prepare for the 2030 Great Depression. So what, seven years from now, seven, a little over seven years, we have a Great Depression to potentially look forward to. So how, how do you stay positive? That's, that's a great question. Uh, I think the simple answer, I don't know if it's simple, but I think the answer I would give is focus on what you can control. So I can't control, like I saw Russia the other day had some um, some fighter jets in U.S. airspace near Alaska. Like I can't control that. I can't control new talks of nuclear war. I can't control. I can't control things outside of my realm, right? So I want to focus on what I can control. What can I control? What I can control is what I do with myself. What do I do in the morning? How do I control my habits? How do I control what my day looks like? How do I control what I watch? You know, I'm not a huge fan of watching the news. I think it's important to stay informed, but I think to get consumed by it is not a good thing. I don't want to consume myself with all this stuff going on in the world that I can't do a thing about, right? So I want to focus. I want to be informed, and I want to be able to set myself up to focus on the things that I can control every single day. So what are my habits? What am I doing? How am I pushing my business forward? What am I doing with my diet? What am I doing with my fitness plan? What am I doing with my sleep? What am I doing with the things I can control to really make myself the best version of myself so I can go out there and excel? Good markets, bad markets, up markets, down markets, whatever it is, if I'm focused on myself and what I can control, I can figure out how to thrive regardless of the economy. I can figure out how to thrive regardless of what's going on in the outside world. If I sit there and watch the news, and here's the thing, it's all the same, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, I mean, they're all spewing the same stuff. It's just some of it you might agree with and some of it you might not, depending on who's speaking. But at the end of the day, is any of it changing your outlook on life? Is any of it making an impact on you? It's the same way I think with the president. This president, that president, none of them have done anything for me. Have they done anything for you? None of them care about you. Yeah, they don't even know me. Right, so why am I sitting there defending somebody? At the end of the day, I need to control. I need to take care of myself first, and that's the way I look at it. If I can control my environment and the people in my direct environment, that's how I can make the greatest impact. I can't go solve world hunger at this at the moment. 
you know, I can't go do these other things. What I need to do is focus on what I can control, what my environment looks like, and how do I better my environment so then to turn, I can make the people in my environment better. I can provide more opportunities for those people. And that's how we can start to go make an impact for bigger issues. But me just talking about, oh my gosh, the whole world's going to hell, this or that, that's not helping anything. Well, so, I think that's what like the media and everybody wants you to do. They want you to feel like you don't have control. You can't do anything. And they want everybody to be just a victim and say, oh, no, I can't control this. Hopefully, President Biden, hopefully, President yeah. Trump, hopefully, you know, this senator, or hopefully this congressman can fix my problems instead of you taking matters into your own hand and saying, OK, here's me. Here's my life. Here are the four closest people I spend my time with. What can I control here? And yeah. if you can do that, and it creates a huge ripple effect, and I feel like if a ton of people do that, then not only will you solve your problems and create a drastically better life, but it will also ripple and you start to influence other people to do the same thing. And that's how you can create a real change, you know, not just in your own life, but in the country as well. Yeah, I think that's huge. That's a great point. It is. It's easy to just to buy into the negative negativity. Oh, it's terrible. Nothing's good. Everything's going to, you know, going in the wrong direction. It's harder to say, what can I do to make change? How can I change myself? How can I get better? How can I thrive? When everyone else is pulling back and retreating, how can I push forward? All right? And I think it's just a lot harder. All right? And that's where, to your point, Joe, it's easier to just to kind of sit back and say, well, the economy's bad, so that's why I'm not doing well. Oh, the market's terrible. That's why I don't have money. Oh, I wouldn't. That's why I don't invest money because everyone's losing their money right now. There's just all these excuses, right? Instead of just owning your life and owning this is where I'm at, this is what I need to do to get better. How can I make my environment better? How can I be more positive? How can I thrive? Because, like we talked about, I think we talked about it last week or a couple of weeks ago. There's always opportunity. There are so many fortunes that are made in down markets. It's just that the difference is the people that say, how can I thrive in this market as opposed to saying, I can't thrive in this market. Most people just throw, throw up a wall and say, I can't do it. The market's terrible. The environment, the economy, this or that. So I'm just going to stop. How many times do you hear, too, about like other realtors or mortgage people? In 2008, they said, oh, yeah, I was doing really good. And then 2008 came yeah. around and you know I, I just had to hang it up. I just wouldn't get it, got a job yeah. somewhere else. It's like... We're, we're going to be heading into one of those times again, inevitably. Maybe mm -hmm. it'll be three months. Maybe it'll be six months. Maybe it'll be two years. It, it's just how economics work. Yeah. So that's going to come again. And I think you have the option on, hey, do you want to be that guy, you know, sitting at the bar like in one movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn yeah. Ross, you know, <laughs> used to be yeah. a salesman. Yeah, you do you want to be it's that tough, guy? You know, it's a tough racket. It's a tough racket. <laughs> Do you want to be that guy, you know, in five or ten years talking to your kids or, you know, your wife saying, oh, it's a tough racket. I used to be in real estate, mm -hmm. but then, you know, all oh, this market came and just destroyed me, couldn't do anything. Yet, how many hundreds or thousands of other realtors will succeed or mortgage people or whatever industry? There's going to be people that come out way ahead yeah. and create massive success. And then there's also going to be, you know, probably tenfold the amount of people that just quit or just mm -hmm. bury the hatchet and hope things get better. And when they do, those people are going to be paralyzed and they're going to be way behind the people that took advantage of the situation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, and that's the thing. There's always opportunity. It's figuring out. It's one, making a decision that I'm never going to fall victim to an economy. I'm going to create my own economy by doing the things I'm supposed to do every single day and building an, 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 an abundant business. And so you're absolutely right, Joe. It's, 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 you come to a crossroads at certain points in the market and – there are so many people that just say, oh, the market was terrible. Well, there are a lot of people that made a ton of money in 08. 
right, that had that had a lot of success in 08 in a down market because there was tons of opportunity. You just have to know what to look for. Right. So, so that, that transition is us perfectly into the next question. Okay. So what should you do to prepare for a down economy? And a lot of people were saying we're in a recession, which technically we are because we've had, uh, you know, over two consecutive quarters now where the GDP has been negative, which by definition means we're in a recession. Uh, so how do you prepare for, I guess, going deeper into this recession or a worse recession? That's a good question. So I think for me, one of the things would be where I need to look at where's my business coming from. Is my business tied to one pillar? Meaning like, let's say, is your business, so to take this as an example, a realtor whose business was tied, 100% of their business came from, 95% of their business came from REO, relocation, real estate owned banks, right? If that was all of their business, well, you're going to thrive in times when foreclosures are up and you're going to starve in times when foreclosures are down. If your business is tied to builders, if your business, if you're in the steel business and you're tied to, I don't know, Weber Kettles or like you can't have one flow where the most of your business comes from. We need to start looking at that first because if, if let's just go back to new construction. If I'm in new construction and all of my business comes from one builder, well, what happens if that builder starts to struggle? Well, then I'm going to struggle as well. So I think it's important that no matter what business you're in, we need to look at where does the bulk of my business come from? Where, what sources does my business come from and how do I increase those sources right now and how do I spread it out too to where I have four, five, six. Think about your business like a chair you're sitting in right now. If you have four legs and each of those legs on that chair is a pillar of business or a stream or a source of business, if one leg gets kicked out, your chair gets wobbly. Now, if you have one leg on that chair, you're going to be wobbly regardless. You might be able to balance for a while, but after, after a certain point in time, you're going to get tired and it's going to fall over. If I have six legs on my chair and one gets kicked out, it's not the end of the world. So I think for that's the first thing I'll be looking at is my sources of business. Where are my strong sources? Where are my weaker sources? How can I strengthen the weaker sources? And how can I look to add more sources right now as well? So that if one goes away, I still have four or five or six to fall back on. I also think it's extremely important that if you're going to start preparing, if the economy is going down and chances are the economy is going to get worse. Like we borrowed a ton of money during COVID. We've been borrowing a ton of money. We're in a ton of debt. Our country's in a ton of debt. It, it, you know, inflation's through the roof. And I'm not an economist, but I read a lot. We're not going in a positive direction. So things are going to get tough. So I think as a business owner, real estate agent, business owners, salespeople, regardless of what industry you're in, you have to look at what expenses can I cut? So that's the one thing I look at every single week. I look at my financial statement and I'm looking at what am I spending money on that I don't need? Like today, Sarah sent me an email. She's like, hey, I just saved us $10 a month, right? Some people are like, oh, it's 10 bucks. In the grand scheme of things, $10 is nothing, and it's still $10 now that's going to my bottom line. $10 a month she cut. Today, I was able to cancel one account that we, we didn't need it, and I saved $10. Well, if I can do that every single week, and let's just say I can save 50 bucks a week every single week, over the course of the year, that's $2,500 or something, right? I'm not a mathematician. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's $2,500 I just put in my pocket in the form of profit, that if any, it's not in the grand scheme of you know millions of dollars, it's not a lot of money, and it's still twenty five hundred dollars that I was just consciously cutting because I don't need to do this, right? What if I save five hundred dollars a month? Well, that's six grand now to my bottom line, and it's things I don't need to spend my money on, right? Like things that we're not using. So be looking at that. How am I constantly cutting things that aren't either giving me a return, and then focus on big things too. Maybe you're spending $1,000 on leads and it's not giving you a return. You've been doing it for a year. You spent $12,000. You make $2,000 back. You've lost ten grand. Cut that or figure out a way to make it profitable. 
But you have to be looking at your expenses and start preparing for things. And this is not to say retreat because I don't believe in retreating and being like, oh, God, we're going to just pull back everything. If things are working and they're giving you return, look to maybe double down on those things, but cut the things that aren't making you money and start cutting your expenses and be conscious and aware of what you're spending your money on because that's a big thing too. People sign up for stuff. Like if you ever looked on your iPhone, Joe, um, it's under um, – go to your settings and go to your little iCloud thing at the top and you have subscriptions. Oh, subscriptions. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You ever clicked on that? You're like, oh, I forgot I was paying for oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many times it's been six, eight months later and you're like, oh, yeah. man, it's $5 yeah. a month. $5 right a month. There. Yeah. That maybe – and so it's little things like that. But that's how intentional you should be as a business owner with your profit and loss statement. That's why it's important to have a profit and loss statement. Get QuickBooks, you know, 20 30 bucks a month. I think some versions are even cheaper than that. Set up QuickBooks and start getting intentional with your money because if you don't know where it's going – and I think that's a big thing too. A lot of people, especially realtors in the beginning, they commingle accounts. They got all the money dumping into their checking account. They got expenses coming out. They might even have payroll coming out of it. You know, they're spending their vacation money out of it and, and it's a mess. So start getting your finances in order. That would be my first suggestion is firm up your sources and where your business is coming from. Look to add pillars and get your money right. That's huge. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? No, I think it's big. And I think you have to think of it like you're, you're preparing for a race. Like you just have to cut the fat. Yeah. And you have to get ready for the marathon because it's going to be hard. Yeah. It's not going to be easy by any means. But if you can cut that fat, and I think if you go into it with the mindset too, and, hey, I'm going to come out of this on the other side stronger, better, a lot better than everybody else is. And I think that's the right mindset you have instead of – because we already hear right now that there's a lot of realtors that are saying, oh, there's no business out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, the interest rates are 7%. No one wants to buy houses. You hear from mortgage people, oh, rates are 7%. Applications are at an all-time low. Everybody's talking negative, and everybody's kind of going on that retreat. Mm -hmm. So if you can do the exact opposite of that and say, hey, you know what? You can go take a nap, or you can go wait this out. I'm going to go headfirst into the storm. You're going to get through a lot faster and a lot easier because, like you said, there's always opportunity out there. Yes, there might be a little bit fewer opportunities, so it might be a little bit harder, so you're probably going to have to work harder, but there's still going to be an abundance of opportunity out there uh, for you to go capture yeah. and build your business off of. There always is, because when the market's going up, that's when more people are getting into the business. So in sense, the available income gets greater, but so does the opportunity gets a little bit less because there's more people going after that income. When the market starts to fall the available income starts to drop because there might not be as many units, but that also means people are getting out of the business. So you can pick up, there's a sweet spot in there that if you stay consistent and keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to start to scoop up that market share while everyone else is pulling back. You're going to be able to pick those extra deals up and that's market share you'll never get back. So the key is stay super consistent, but also start planning for this stuff now. Don't wait because you're seeing a lot of companies right now, real estate companies, mortgage companies, big companies doing massive amounts of layoffs. It's because everyone goes gangbusters when stuff's good and they never anticipate things might turn around a little bit. So they hire, 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 payroll goes through the roof, expenses go through the roof. And then all of a sudden they start to see the first sign of like, oh, wait a minute, loan apps are down or our units are down or whatnot. We need to start firing everybody. Right, but if, you, if you're in the habit of, of having a solid business and you're looking at your expenses and you're not going crazy on hiring and, and you're looking at things from a practical standpoint – you can control then where if things start to go down a little bit, maybe you have enough resources not to let go of top talented people because you can't afford payroll. Right? So it's all about in times when times get tough, it's about outlasting the competition. And the way you outlast is you have to have cash reserves to be able to know like, hey, if I didn't sell another house for the next year, could my company survive? 
If I, if I had to wait two years without any money coming in, could my company survive? You have to have cash reserves. And the way you have cash reserves is be smart when times are really, really good so that when times do get bad, you can outlast everybody else. Well, think about the opportunity cost too because you know if the market does drop like a lot of people say it does, who knows if it will or not, but if it does and you have all that cash reserve, mm-hmm. think about all the abundant opportunities. That yes, exactly. you know, If you want to buy a property, if you want to buy a business, if you want right. to buy stock – there's going to be opportunity at some point or the other. And if you have all that cash reserve, that's how there's a big transition of wealth whenever yeah. there are these downward economies. There absolutely is. People need to sell. They have to unload. It happens all the time. And if you're in a financial position to be able to buy that, there's a lot of opportunity there. That's a great point. So the next question that we run into is, how do you maintain your standards as you grow? I know this is a something that's been very difficult. Our team's even dealt with this because mm-hmm. um, it's definitely a challenge. So, what are your thoughts on this question? It's a good question. So it, that is, it's tough. So I think for one, you have to know what your standards are. So we've, we've struggled with this too, of just being totally transparent. Uh, we've struggled with it and have like somewhat of an identity crisis, I would say, over the, over the years where um, the way we started with our standards, we started to get a little lax. And a lot of it happened, we were talking about this the other day, a lot of it happened during COVID because we had super, super high standards and then we were forced to be at home. And then while we still continued to do Zoom and we had a massive growth year, I think we had like a 30 plus percent growth year. We added like $16 million to our our sales in 2020, massive growth. But the reason, and then we got flat in 2021, we had a little tiny bit of growth. The reason we had all that growth though was because all the standards we had in place from 2018, 2019. And then in 2020, we thrived because everyone just kept doing what they're supposed to do, even though we were doing it from home. Well, then coming back into the office um, halfway through 2020 or toward the end of 2020, our standards started to get a little lax. We started to kind of let people do things and operate like that we normally wouldn't have in 2019 and 2018. And so because of that, we saw our sales get flat. So it was like we need to go back to doing what we were doing and start having high standards. What does that look like? Well, it's going to vary from different companies. It's going to vary from different teams. But you have to know what do you expect from your team and then do you expect it from yourself as well? Because you can't just tell other people to do it and not do it as well. Now, as you grow a business, your your role evolves, certainly. right? But we have to have those standards in place and you have to have people uphold those standards. And here's the thing. It's not being – if you have standards in place and the standards are crystal clear and everybody knows it and you're hard on somebody, you're not being hard on that person. You're being hard on the standard. And if you let people slip by and not hold true to the standard, then what you're saying is your standard really isn't your standard. It's just some writing on the wall. So be thinking that doesn't really mean anything. Well, so-and-so doesn't do it. You, you say it's a standard, but they don't do it at all. So you have to sit down with people that aren't upholding your standards. One, do they know what the standard was? And if the answer is yes, why aren't they whole upholding the standard? And that's the conversation. Those are the tough conversations you have to get prepared to have with people. Listen, we have an expectation or a standard of a certain amount of lead generation. You're not upholding that right now. Were you aware of the standard? Yes, I was. Why aren't you doing it? Well, I don't think it's important. Okay, why don't you think it's important? Well, because I don't know. I just don't want to do it. Whatever that is, we need to, one, why are the standards in place and are they crystal clear? Are they beneficial? Are they helping people? And if the answer is yes, like a lead generation standard, does that help people generate more business? The answer is yes, if it's done correctly and you can teach people how to do it. So if that's a standard that people don't want to uphold, they're probably not the right fit for your company or your organization or your team because they're not going to uphold the standards that you've built your business on. Well, and plus, you're going to waste their time because they're never going to be successful if they can't. Because usually the standards are put in place 
to not only create a successful person, but a successful organization as well. Mm -hmm. And if they can't uphold, you know, one or any of the standards, chances are they're never going to be successful and they're just going to waste their time, Mm -hmm. you know, in your office. And then three, four, five, six months down the line, they're either going to sell one house or maybe a few houses and then flop and quit. And we've seen it time after time, the people that don't uphold the standards usually fall off very quickly. Right. Like, give you an example, a script practice standard. We have a script practice standard. We we script practice every day at 10 o'clock. The people that show up and do that do very well. I've had people in the past say, well, I just want to practice. I get to practice when I'm on the phone. Well, that means you're just practicing. It's like going to a game, always playing games and never practicing. You're probably not going to be very good. So you've got to have standards in place. So going back to this, as you grow, it's a challenge to uphold your standards. But that's why you have to have strong standards from the beginning. They have to be crystal clear. You have to uphold them, and you have to get people to buy into those standards. And you have to have people buy into the vision of where you see your company going and how these standards that you have in place can help you get to that next level. Because if people start to buy into it, then they start to uphold the standard. And that's what's cool is in the beginning, it's got to be you upholding the standard. But then as you bring people into your world and they start upholding the standard, and then you start seeing them hold other people accountable naturally. You didn't ask them to do it. But they naturally start holding other people accountable to the standards in your organization. That's when you know you're on the verge of starting to build something really great. When now all of a sudden it's not you just enforcing it. It's other people voluntarily enforcing the standards because they want to work with other people that bind to the standards, that bind to the vision, that bind to the work ethic, that bind to all of those things. That's when you know you're starting to build something. So it's a challenge. It is. But you have to be willing to have tough conversations too. Like everybody wants to be the boss. Nobody wants to have the tough conversations. Right. So I think that's that for me, too. I know I struggle with that for a long time, too. I've got I still don't like doing it. Nobody does. Nobody wants to sit down and have an awkward, tough conversation. But when your standards are super clear and people aren't upholding them, it makes it a lot easier. Right? So get prepared to have tough conversations if you want to run a business, if you want to lead teams within an organization, if you want to be in leadership roles, you want to be in management roles. Get ready to have tough conversations because that's what's coming. Yeah, one thing I was going to say, too, I think the standards are probably the most important when business is going good. Yeah. Because like you'd said, you know, 2020, we're doing great, Mm -hmm. and that's immediately when our standards dropped. Yep. And you don't really see the effect immediately when your standards drop when things are good because things are going good and you're riding off that wave of momentum that you built the past, you know, two, three years. And then when you drop your standards, you're not going to see the effect for maybe six months, a year, just because that compound, you have a massive wave of momentum, but then all of a sudden things are going to drop off very quickly Mm -hmm. and you're going to be like, Oh no, what happened? Right. So I think it's big that you enforce your standards maybe even harder than you usually do when times are good, because when times are bad, people are going to know that, Hey, you need to follow the standards. If you even want to you know keep a job here and keep things going but when things are good that's when people tend to slack off and say hey you know what i'm making good money company's making good money i can skip doing this or i can Mm -hmm. skip doing that or i can you know take it easy so i think that's one of the biggest things and i think that's probably one of the most dangerous traps to fall into which we found ourselves in and i think the biggest thing for us is we recognize it and we course correct it as quickly as we could yeah well you're absolutely right it's good to great right good is the enemy of great Oh, we're doing well. Oh, we're doing good enough. Oh, man, we're growing. Oh, we're way ahead of last year. Oh, this, 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 this. That's the enemy of progress. That's the comfort. That's that comfort setting in. We see it happen all the time. It's happened with us. We just told you it happened with us. You start to get a little comfortable. You start to feel like you're doing better than other people around you. And that's the worst place to be in. It's it's. We should be constantly pushing toward our goals, not 
pushing toward, well, you know, we're doing pretty well. We're Things doing better than the good. team down the street. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what a lot of people fall into that trap is. They do. Hey, I'm doing better than my whole family or I'm doing yeah. better than all the small businesses in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We feel like we're great. Instead of how, how can I be the absolute best in the country or the exactly. best in the world? Because yeah. I think that's the ultimate you know, goal to strive for to be the best. And that's just it. Have those goals that you're striving for. So don't get comfortable with, hey, we're up 16 million or X amount percent. It's, did we hit our 2021 goal? And if the answer is no, but we had a massive growth year, why aren't we continuing to uphold our standards and push harder to go get that? So don't fall into this trap that, hey, things are good. Because here's the other thing too. I see a lot of people, they start, you know, it's when you don't have anything, it's easy to be motivated, in my opinion. Like it's it's way easier to be motivated when you have $0 in your checking account than when you have like $500,000 in your checking account. And if you have $500,000 in checking account, you have to be looking at that like that's not that much money in the grand scheme of things and it can be taken away like that. You can make one stupid mistake. You can have one lawsuit. You can have one thing happen, one medical thing happen, and all of that money can be gone. So don't fall into the trap of being comfortable either. I'm all about like setting goals and and and, and it, you know being proud of like where you've gone and what you've accomplished, but we should never be content or never be satisfied because – Life's all about like how do we continue to progress and get better and keep striving to be the absolute best we can be. And that's what I think with standards with a company too. Don't get lax. Like we're, we're very open and transparent with a lot of the mistakes we make. We've made tons of them. I've made a ton. Joe's made a ton. We all have, right? And the people that act like they've never got it all figured out and they've never made mistakes are probably the people that have never really built anything. They're just reading theory from a book. So be thinking about that. What are your standards that you are absolute – like these are non-negotiables. These are non-negotiables. If I'm going to hire somebody, this is a non-negotiable, and I'm going to uphold this standard to make sure that it's upheld in my company forever. Absolutely. So the next question that we do have is, what's the fastest way to get your business off the ground or get your business going? Good question. Um, So it depends on the industry. We can talk from real estate. I think for one, you have to know that there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing where it's like, hey, I'm just going to pay for this. Like People think like, I remember people saying, well, I'm going to spend a certain amount on leads and I'm going to get 100 leads a month and I'm going to convert 50 of them and I'm going to sell 600 units. Well, that's not realistic, right? So they haven't done the math. So I think a lot of it is knowing what are my goals, knowing that growing a business takes time. There's no fast – the people that have like this rapid success, it generally doesn't last because they haven't built or solidified the the stable practices and consistent habits that are required to build a business. So – To answer the question, though, I would say, one, I would be looking at my database. Do I have a database, a CRM, something where I can put people into it? And how many people are in there? Because here's what we know. On average, 10% of our database moves every year. So if my goal is, say, to sell 30 houses this year, I need to have at least 300 people in my database that I can systematically reach out to. Even if you don't systematically reach out to them, but you just call them once a quarter, you're going to have significant progress over the person that's not making a single phone call to their database. So if I can make phone calls to my database once a quarter, maybe once a month, and just say hi, that's what I think people tend to overcomplicate this. They think they need some crazy script or something. Just call them and say hi and say, you know, how's work? And they're going to say, great, how's the real estate market? (laughs) And then you're naturally going to turn that conversation into real estate. It happens all of the time because people either own a house and they want to know what it's worth. They intend to buy a house and they want to know how the market is or they want to invest in real estate. So just call them and say hi, and as long as they know you're in real estate, it's going to turn into a real estate-related conversation without having to sound scripted at all. 
I think that's one. Uh, I know we were talking about mistakes earlier. I think that's one thing we used to do too, kind of as a team, is we try to put all these scripts together yeah. for, hey, how do we call our SOI, yeah. know, our past clients, and what do we say to them? We said, like, literally just pick up the phone, yeah. say hello. They're going to want to hear from you. Like, And then the yeah. conversation will just naturally progress, mm-hmm. maybe into real estate, maybe into their personal life, maybe into their family. Who knows? But it will be a good conversation as long as they know you, they like you, and they trust you. 100% will. So don't overcomplicate it. But I would say if you want to get your business going, I would be looking at that first. I would build a solid business around people that already know you, like you, and trust you before you start spending money on strangers, before you start spending money on farming, before you start spending money on internet leads, before you start spending – I would build this solid pillar like we talked about earlier um, from the – I think it was the first question and having sources of business. I would have this be the strongest source of business where 50, 60 percent of your business is coming from your database because that's something you can continue to build and expand on. And then once I have a solid system around that, I would start looking at what's the next pillar I can add? What's the next thing I can go after? Is it expired listings? Is it for sale by owners? Is it farming? Is it internet lead generation? Whatever it is, add a second leg and then add a third leg and then add a fourth leg. But what I see most people do when they get into the industry is they try to do all of it at once. They try that, you know what, I'm gonna farm, I'm gonna go door knock every week, I'm gonna call for sale by owners, I'm gonna hit expires, I'm gonna spend this money on internet leads, I'm going to do all of this stuff I'm going to do open houses and then they try a little bit of each of it. None of it works because they only gave it a little bit of effort for each. And then they say, yeah, none of that worked. So build one, start with your database, build it as a pillar and a really strong pillar. Call your people, call your people once a month. You're not bothering them. Call them once a month. Because here's the thing. If you had 300 people in your database and you called them all once a month for one, not all 300 people are going to answer. So the people that you left voicemails for aren't going to call you back. So you connect with them next month. Call them every single month. Say hi. That's all you have to do. It sounds simple because it is. Just say hi. It's going to turn into a natural real estate conversation. Then I would add some sort of an email. Get a CRM that can send out a market report or a property alert, something like that, uh, for their area. And then now all of a sudden they're getting an email from you too and a phone call. Well, there's 24 potential touches right there. Start with that. And then you can figure out ways to increase it. What I think too, you have to have the mindset. You talk about this a lot that you know when you're brand new to something – you're going to get worked the hardest and get paid the least. Yeah. And then later on, you know, once you're developed, you're going to maybe work the least and get paid the mm-hmm. most. So I think you have to come into to it with that mindset because we see a lot of people come into it with the opposite mindset where, hey, I'm going to work very little and I'm going to make $100,000 or I'm going to make a million dollars or hit my income goal. And it doesn't work that way. In the yeah. very beginning, you have to build that momentum up. You have to think about it as like a train. A train does, doesn't go from zero miles an hour to 100 miles an hour. It has to heat up. It has to get going. Same thing with your business. It's going to take some time and you're going to have to work really hard to get it off the ground. But as you get it off the ground, once it starts running, then you can maybe step back a little bit and not have to work as hard as you did in the beginning. Yeah. You're absolutely right because I think – and I was guilty of this when I was younger and I first got into it. I think a lot of people are. You can't compare your year one to somebody else in the office's year 30. Like you can't compare your first year to the guy in the office making a million dollars that's been doing it for 30 years at golfs three days a week. You don't – like you just can't. Like that guy probably worked really, really, really hard yes. when he first started. He probably worked really, really, really hard for a decade or two decades and now in his third decade – He's able to golf three days a week and he can show up in golf shorts and his average price point is 700000 And right, So you can't compare because I remember that. I'd be like, God, I'm here all the time when I was brand new. I was a young guy. I'm the first one here. I'm the last one to leave. I'm working my butt off. I'm making all these calls. I'm talking to all these people. This guy's not doing anything and he's selling you know, 50 times more real estate than I am. But I was comparing my year one to his year 30. 
So don't do that. Don't compare yourself. You can go ask that person, hey, what did your first year look like? What did your second year look like? What did your first five years look like? Your first 10 years look like? And I guarantee you, he's not going to say, oh, I golf four days a week and I do everything I'm doing now. It was probably, I showed up like you're doing. I'm super consistent. I was making the calls like you're doing. I was doing all the things that I didn't want to do that allowed me to get to this level. So I think that's extremely important too, as far as getting your business going fast. It's about not fast, but it's how can I build a consistent, and it's not about having a good year. It's about how do I have a good career? So how do I build a sustainable, solid business that's going to thrive year after year after year after year after year, regardless of the economy, regardless of if it's a buyer market or seller market? How do I build the habits to be able to do that? 100%. So the next question we have is how do you build self-confidence? I think this is a huge one for anybody you know, with a business or in sales because no one's going to buy from you if you're not confident in yourself. Good point. Um, that's a good question. I think it for me, it comes from practice. So... I remember being new and zero self-confidence when it came to sales, zero self-confidence when it came to going on a listing appointment, zero self-confidence when I had, I shouldn't say self-confidence, but zero confidence that I knew what I was doing because I didn't, right? So everyone says fake it till you make it. Well, I don't really buy into that. I buy into how do I go learn what I need to know and then practice over and over and over and over again to get really good. Like when I started calling expired listings back in the day. I was terrible at it because I was terrified to make a phone call, right? But the more I practiced the script and the more confident and comfortable I got with the script, then I was willing to start having those conversations on the phone. Then when I got an objection, I would actually throw an objection handler out there because I was like, I might as well just try it. And it was nerve wracking. And then the more I did it and the more repetitions I got, the more I was able to feel like I can do this. And then all of a sudden you start having wins, from the practice that you're doing. You start setting appointments, you start getting listings, you start working with buyers, you start having wins from all of the things that you've been practicing. That's how your confidence starts to go up. Because it's not gonna go up, the more deals you do, the more confident you're gonna get. All right, if I do one deal a year, I'm probably not gonna be super confident because every time I do that one deal a year, I'm not gonna know what the heck I'm doing because I don't remember what I did last year. But if I'm having a deal a week now, I'm going on appointments a week, I'm getting in front of people, I'm talking to people, I'm naturally building my self-confidence. Even if I'm not selling anything yet, I just set three appointments this week or five appointments or I just met with four buyers and I set five listings and that's how you're going to build confidence by the act of doing. But it starts with how do I need to start practicing? I need to know what to do. So I'm a firm believer in do what you say you're going to do, but essentially it's it's you need to know what to say. You need to say it enough times and have enough people to say it to, right? And that's it. Like if I have enough people to keep saying my scripts over and over and over and over to, eventually that's going to turn into a lot of business where that's going to help build my self-confidence. What about you, Joe, from year one to year four? How have you said you, how would you say you've developed your self-confidence? I, th I think it's all about practice and doing the work too. Yeah. Because I think if you work harder than everybody else, like if you're there from the very beginning of the day all the way till the last person leaves, just that alone, that's going to build tremendous confidence because you're working harder than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And even if you're the worst, just the fact that you're working harder than everybody else, you kind of have this little thing in the back of your head like, hey, I outwork that guy, I outwork that guy, I outwork that guy. And then you internally build confidence. And if you look at like professional athletes like you know Tom Brady or LeBron James, some of the greatest athletes of all time, do you think when they were brand new or in their rookie years that they were confident? Absolutely. And the reason for that being is they practiced all mm -hmm. the time. Like they're always working on their skill and their craft. And it's just all about doing the work. And I think if you just stick to the work and work very hard, that confidence will just naturally come. Versus someone who just comes in maybe a couple hours a day or you know 10 hours a week, they're not going to be very confident because they're not very good at their skill and they're not constantly striving to be better.
Dude, you know what? You just said Tom Brady and it made me think of something. We need somebody who can just look stuff up for us. Uh, yeah, we're not there yet. But <laughs> but think about this. Like Tom Brady, greatest of all time, right? He was drafted sixth round, 199th overall. So was Tom Brady some super talented individual that was just a lights-out college football player? No, he got drafted in the sixth round. and he get, So he became great, just as you just said there, Joe. He became great from being consistent and he had a, he had the mindset like he told um, who was the owner was it the owner or the head coach it was the owner was it Kraft is he on the Patriots yeah, yeah, I don't Kraft, know football Kraft. that well yeah, but yeah. No, it was I used to play it but I don't I don't study this stuff <laughs> um, yeah he he said like hey that was the best decision you ever made by picking me I'm going to be your best player or quarterback or something like that he had the confidence but then he had the work ethic to follow to it. back it up exactly. yeah because a lot of people talk and here's the thing you can ride on your talent for so long but if you don't have the work ethic and you don't have the the consistent pursuit of wanting to develop and better yourself and you start getting that mindset of like you start buying the fact that yeah i'm doing pretty well i'm good enough like you're gonna get passed up you're gonna get passed up exactly you're gonna get outworked and he's an example of a guy that crushed it because he was consistent he worked hard he probably outworked outworked most of the people in the room same thing with like kobe bryant guys like that people talk about their talent those guys had an extreme work ethic they were in there i watched a documentary the other day on the uh the NBA dream team and the basketball team. And they basically said like they went out one night, all these guys, Kobe was on the team this year. They went out and they were strolling in at like 5am from the club and Kobe was going to the gym. And so what happened was Kobe was going to the gym. They were kind of like, they saw him in the lobby getting ready to go to the gym at 5am and they were all hammered and you know, they had a night off or whatever. And he said, well then like LeBron started going to the gym at 5am and then somebody else, I don't know what all their names, but right. So like all these other players on the team started going to the gym and it was a natural effect or progression of all of a sudden like high achieving people that want to get ahead. So to your point, don't write on your talent and the more it's the act of doing, what am I reading? What am I studying? What am I learning? What am I practicing? And then what am I putting into place and actually doing on a consistent basis that's going to push me forward? Because I, I think the most dangerous thing is the, the opposite of confidence, where it's almost ego or yeah. or false confidence, where you think you're very good, it's almost like yeah. almost yeah. like the talent part, where you know you're a little bit talented, you have a little bit of success in the beginning, and you're like, oh, you know what, I'm great, I can do this all on my own, I don't need any help, yep. I'm the best, and I think that's the most dangerous place you can be. Because ultimately, you just have to come to that realization in the beginning, like, hey, I'm probably going to be horrible, but if I work very hard and never stop, I can. I have the potential to be the best. Yeah. That's a great point because you all know the people that have uh, – they think they've got it all mastered. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a person that thinks you've got it all figured out, you probably don't have much of anything figured out. Just being honest, and I'm not saying that to be mean, but I, I, we know people like that that act like they just know it all because they're so terrified – to be vulnerable or to actually admit that they don't know something like there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. And like, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want to be learning and figuring out how I can get better. But to go back to the question, cause we kind of went all around there, uh, build yourself confidence. You have to do, you have to practice and then put it, your practice into place. Go get more reps, go get in front of more people, go practice more, go read more, go study more, go learn more, go ask more questions, go meet other successful people that are doing the things that you want at the level that you aspire to get to. Go figure out what they're doing and ask them questions. From that, you're going to start to build your self-confidence. You just got to win. That's the thing. The more wins you have, I learn and I build way more confidence from my wins than my losses. Like people are always like fail forward, which I'm a firm believer in. You're going to have failure. We've had plenty of failure, but I learn way more by having wins. And the way I have wins is I go practice more. I go put my practice into place and I keep making stuff happen. So final question we got 
is when should you make your first hire? Um, so as far as like hire, I think what a lot of people do is they make the mistake. Let's go back to real estate. Um, they make the mistake of hiring an agent first. So they're like, oh, you know what? I got all these leads coming in. I can't work them. I'm going to hire an agent. But they have no solid system for um, uh, ops, for operations. So your first hire should be an operations person, an admin, an assistant, call them what you want. I don't like calling people assistants because I don't think anybody wants to be somebody's assistant. That's just me. Uh, so I like using operations. I like, and here's the thing. Your first hire is going to be extremely important because if you make that hire right, that's somebody that could run your business. That's somebody that can help advance your business at levels you could never do it at because they're going to be opposite of you. Like if you're in sales, your personality is probably go do, go out, create a mess, um, your paperwork's probably not the best. You're going to go get in front of more people and go figure out how to drive sales. You need to find somebody now that is the total opposite of you in a lot of ways that can allow you to have some structure in your life, that can allow you to start putting processes in place, that can allow you to help scale. Because you on your own, here's the other thing too. If you're on your own, you're going to have to build a team in order to hit some goals. If you're on your own, you don't have a business, you have a practice. So you need to be looking at how can I build a business, some indestructible business where, hey, I can go on vacation for a week and my business still runs. I can go on vacation for a month and my business still runs. Here's a question. If you left for a year and you came back, would you have a business or not? For a lot of people, it's probably no. Right? So, so this first hire and when to do it, we should be doing it quickly, but we also want to lead with revenue. And here's something to think about too. Like people are like, oh my gosh, I have to take on a 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollar salary. Oh my gosh, that's so overwhelming. I don't know what to do. You don't. Look at it from this aspect. It's a 90 day commitment. And this is what I would tell your first hire. Listen, I've got enough to pay you for 90 days. And if things are going well and the business is increasing, I'm going to have enough money to pay you for another 90 days. Right? But it's a test period. It's a trial period. It's not some guaranteed like I'm paying you. And, and I don't like the people that are like, well, it's just 90 days and then cut them loose. Like it's like these are people's lives you're dealing with here. Right. So don't be so cavalier with like, oh, I'm just going to fire them if it doesn't work out. It's up to you to one, figure out what type of person do you need to hire? What kind of roles and responsibilities do you want this person to fill? Where are you lacking right now? Where are the holes in your business that you want this person to fill? So having again, going back to the standards. You have to have clear standard, standards and expectations of what does this role look like and what problems are you wanting them to help you solve? What problems are you wanting to help you solve and then what areas do you want them to expand? And if you make that right hire, and again, you probably won't do it in the first time or the second time. It might take a little bit. But once you find that first hire, these are people that are going to pick up the ball and run with it. They're going to say, look, you're doing things this way. If we do this, 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 we can make it better. We can streamline it. We can make it scalable. We can help push the business forward. Those are the people you want to look for. You don't want the people that are just going to clock in and say, oh, it's 430. I'm out of here. I got 12 other things I still have to do. But hey, my, my day's up. It's Friday. I'll pick this thing up on Monday. You want people that also buy into the vision of where they see this business going. And they're not just going to be people that punch a clock, show up a few minutes late, leave right at 430. Like you don't want that. You want people that care. So that was a long way of saying when to make your first hire. I think as soon as possible. Will, while being smart and leading with revenue, because if your first hire is a good hire, there's somebody that can help take your business to the next level quickly, a lot faster than you're going to be able to do it on your own. Awesome. Yeah. So hope that helps. I think that's all of the questions we had, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. all we got for today. Yeah. So fire them off. Uh, our Instagram is probably the easiest way or whatever podcast you're listening on. You can drop comments in there too. I think we'll eventually see those. But if you want questions uh, answered quickly, 
Uh, and on this podcast, just go to our Instagram at Michael underscore Nettemeyer and at Joe Geary. We'll get them answered. Thanks, guys.